Welcome to After School Democracy, the podcast that attempts to fill in the gaps you almost certainly missed in school about politics, economics, and history. After the November 3rd race, when we were all still counting and recounting the presidential votes, I remember reading a tweet saying, imagine the bigger impact the millions of dollars spent on the failed McGrath campaign could have had if the money had instead been on a newsroom of journalists investigating and reporting all of the Kentucky corruption. Iowa, Kentucky, Maine, and North Carolina were all viewed as potential pickup states for Democrats in the Senate, and the polling was bad as often happens in small races, and the Dems pumped millions into the states just to end up being won by Republicans. This is why calls for a nationwide campaign were for a long time ignored, because it often wastes money that should be going into other races. Supporting local political communities would have a much bigger impact, but sadly the two Democratic super PACs are secretive and opaque as hell, and the three Democratic political committees, the DNC and the Senate and the House campaign committees, are nepotistic as hell, making them demographically homogenous and mentally incestuous when it comes to reaching anyone but white liberal-leaning voters. There are pushes to open up hiring to outsiders and people not related to party members, but we'll see how that goes. Had they been more diverse, they would have realized that the mythical Latino vote is in no way homogenous, and if you want a still too rough but more general view of the Latino voters, you'll lump them into the Cubans, the South Americans, who are more likely to swing right, the Mexicans and Central Americans more likely to swing left, and the Puerto Ricans more likely to swing left but also have a very low voter turnout even when they come to the mainland and are legally allowed to vote. Much of that comes down to their tradition of feeling like their entire vote is useless since they really have no say in the nation they're supposedly part of. Stacey Abrams wouldn't have had to create her own political organization juggernaut in Georgia, a state given up for lost because others in the committee would have had the demographic insight to see it. But the quote stuck with me, and at the barely squeaking by win of all houses for the Dems, meaning it would be a moderate government and a large chunk of the U.S. still voting for Trump in spite of everything he's done to fuck over the nation and its people, I began to realize that the only way to fix this problem was to target swing districts in swing states, and we had to be better at communicating to them or we will fail again and again over the next decade, especially with all the wins in state government races, meaning gerrymandering in many states might be even worse for us, potentially losing us the House, especially since many blue states have removed their own abilities to gerrymander, but most red states are gladly going to do so. North Carolina and Pennsylvania had some of the worst, but luckily they both have Democratic governors to keep that in some form of check, and so far their Supreme Courts have ruled that too extreme gerrymandering violates the state constitution. But then I began thinking about how exactly to communicate to these people. It's really hard, especially if you're from the city and have never interacted with these people. I'm working on a video that explains the four or five top people you'll meet in small-town rural America and how to approach them so as not to immediately shut down all communication. Not currently happy with it, but it'll be coming out in the next month or so? I don't know. Sadly, on the internet, it's impossible to tell what kind you're interacting with on which topic, so it almost immediately explodes into anger. The right, under the John Birch Society and other union-busting think tanks, figured out since so many rural states control so much of the Senate and rural areas got most of their news from radio, they could create a radio-based empire to reach them and move these once pro-union, pro-democratic states red. 
and they succeeded using less money than trying to tackle the bigger states in, say, New York or California. They targeted rural areas and talked to them in ways they were more likely to access. Also, larger cities had a wider range of newspapers, TV, and radio stations. Small towns tend to have one of each, so it was much easier to monopolize these areas, and with the overturn of the Fairness Doctrine under Reagan, which required equal time and political issues for opinions on both sides but based on facts, and all deregulation of cable news allowed for the explosion in Fox News, where TV and radio now had a heavy imbalance in their bias, most often to the right, or worse, anti-left, but even the supposedly left MSNBC is pretty capitalistic compared to the rest of the world. As the internet ramped up, they realized that news sites have heavy data pages, and learning to strip down their sites to be bare-bones for dial-up users in most rural areas, making them more likely to use these easy-to-load sites like Fox and Breitbart over the actual news sites that took forever to load. Then Craigslist and later Facebook cut into the classified section that used to be in papers, and Google cut into their ad revenue, and newspapers started collapsing. Cities with two competing newspapers or news channels often collapsed down to one monopoly that would be more likely to cater to either its parent company, such as the GOP-backed Sinclair Group, or what their readers wanted to hear, such as sensationalism, instead of spending the money on actual journalists to dig out crimes of local government. Local governments loved this, so there was little push to change anything. You always see Chicago, New Jersey, and New York having these super dirty politics and small towns and rural states as being much more clean. That's probably not because they are, that's because these big city areas have two or more competing papers that put a magnifying glass on anything a politician does as they have a large enough readership to keep themselves afloat and hire actual journalists, while smaller papers are barely keeping their nose above water to survive and make cuts in the areas of expensive local investigative journalism, keeping the more non-controversial sports, food, and comic sections that older people like, even as younger people now just get that on the internet and more papers are in danger of folding. Radio news, even on NPR, tends to be more likely to aggregate, and TV news is so expensive that fluff pieces and gun violence infotainment tends to replace actual journalism, which is why I tell everyone, get your news from print or audio, never from TV news. And that brings us back to that tweet. Journalists could have more impact than any political action committee in any race in the long run, especially in rural areas where the status quo is well protected by lack of journalists. Communicating with people not like you is hard. It's hard to get inside the heads and think about how they think about things and what is important to them. In Tsarist Russia, the liberals and leftists were busy with their insulated thought groups in the cities, but hated going out and talking to the rural, uneducated peasants because they were from two different worlds, delaying any chance of an anti-monarchistic revolution. In the modern U.S., we still have that same rural-urban divide. But there was a job created for people to talk to locals about important issues and translate them to outsiders. They were called journalists, who have been a dying breed for a long time since Google, Craigslist, and Facebook killed their bigger source of revenue. I made a video at the beginning of last year called The Presidential Candidates Most Likely to Prevent Another Trump. This involved dealing with a lack of journalism and regulating social media platforms as public utilities to prevent the spread of foreign misinformation campaigns and the imbalanced spread of fake news. These candidates were Yang, Sanders, Warren, and Klobuchar. Biden was near the bottom of the list, but better than Bloomberg and Mayor Pete, but still not that great. That said, three of those four candidates are still in the Senate and will try to push for this legislation, and you need to be ready to call your elected officials to push them to vote for the bills when they do now that they have an actual chance of getting voted on. 
If Schumer kills the no-effort filibuster now that Mitch isn't blocking every single piece of legislation that doesn't give more money to the rich, we actually have a chance. In the meantime, what can you do? Well, you can give money to left-leaning campaign groups, or you can do the long-term task of buying paywall subscriptions and reading papers from swing districts in swing states. This will allow them to actually pay and maybe even hire more journalists to do digging and expose corruption, and allow you a snapshot into their issues, needs, and concerns. I believe with a subscription you can even write letters to the editor even if you don't live in the area, but that varies from paper to paper. If you can do this, you can inject new ideas in new ways to people in that area, but humility is essential and you must avoid coming off as an intellectual snob. 2022 is a special election because it happens to be, just by luck, a race the eight Republican Senate seats are on defense and only two are on defense for the Dems. Sadly, it's also the midterms when turnout is low for the party in power, but maybe the reminder of Trump can have a long-term impact. We will go through these by the numbers. Arizona will have Mark Kelly running again. He was in a special election this year to defeat the governor-appointed candidate to replace John McCain, who died. He's a beloved astronaut and husband of Gabby Giffords, so he has a chance of staying in power there even in two years. Next is Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, and she's more of a centrist, but she's still very conservative going for party over ideas. That said, Alaska just put ranked choice voting into place so people can now vote for a candidate instead of against the worst candidate and has the chance of throwing things into the air. Murkowski has floated the idea that she is going to leave the Republican Party but not join the Democratic Party, meaning she's either going to be independent or start her own party. However, Maine had ranked choice voting and Susan Collins still won, so who knows? Colorado has Michael Bennett, who's pretty popular in that state, that is leaning more and more blue, but will still swing the occasional red. Florida is the home of Marco Rubio. His seat is in play, but it's been a while since I've seen Florida go blue. There's a large untapped Puerto Rican transplant population there, but they have a poor voter turnout while the elderly and Cuban populations went heavily for Trump this year. In Georgia, like Kelly, Raphael Warnock will be having to defend his special election seat when Johnny Isaacson stepped down for health issues. If he and Abrams can maintain their strong network and enthusiasm, he has a good chance of winning again, especially if she's running for governor again like she's floating the idea of. But he also has a good chance of losing if we get complacent. Chuck Grassley in Iowa and Jerry Moran in Kansas are in states that are Schrodinger's purple states. They could flip purple at any time, but they continue to persist red. 2018 was an anomaly in Kansas, especially as the Latino vote in East Kansas flipped a red house seat blue, and in spite of voter suppression tactics, won the election for a Democratic governor for the first time in decades. North Carolina is up in the air as the incumbent stepped down, and North Carolina is a pretty solid purple probably would have gone to the Democratic Senate candidate this year, except he had a sexting scandal. Mind you, had he been a Republican, he would have said God forgave him, and therefore it wouldn't have impacted him at all. Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire and Christine Masto of Nevada are both Dems and have a strong chance of winning re-election, but there's always a chance things could change in a midterm if we aren't careful. Rob Portman of Ohio is pretty well liked, and there was talk of Trump losing there, but it didn't happen. Thinking of Ohio as a swing state now may be considered a lost cause. However, Pennsylvania's Pat Toomey is stepping down, and Wisconsin's Ron Johnson are in bluer-leaning swing states, and we have a chance of replacing them. But only if we don't rest on our laurels. If we were able to pull it off, we could gain up to eight new Senate seats, 
and allow an actual chance for things like Medicare for All to actually have a chance of passing. But right now, the best we can do is fight system issues, blocking people to vote, such as reinstating the Civil Rights Act and the McCain-Feingold Act that restricted money in politics until Citizens United struck it down. We got the barest minimum this election, got rid of the possible fascist dictator, and barely wrenched the Senate from Mitch's vice-like grip. Our fight starts here if we want anything progressive to ever pass. How do we do this? Get involved and inform. Donate to Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Project to help end the rigged system we have in terms of voter suppression and money in politics, and also buy local papers in swing districts in swing states. I made up a list of states to start off with, and I will probably highlight a state every month from here on out with papers you can buy. And lastly, I'm going to put a special mention in here because of a dramatic but poorly covered change in one very red state ripe for flipping. As some of you know, Mississippi changed its flag from one with the Confederate battle flag of Northern Virginia or the racist rebel flag to one that is actually really pretty and has a magnolia on it. What was even more consequential, though, was the overturning of a Jim Crow era election law that required all statewide elections to not only win a majority, but to require a majority approval from the heavily gerrymandered state house. This essentially blocked the state with the largest black population in the nation of 35%, 5% more than Georgia, of ever having a progressive or black person win in that state. This is a potential game changer, and if Abrams can send some of her people that organize the black religious left in Georgia to do the same in Mississippi, where in statewide races your vote was pretty much useless for so long, and now isn't, it won't change anything in the 2022 race, but it may have a big impact in the 2024 Senate and Governor's race, and then the 2026 Senate race. So I'll be making a video listing papers in Mississippi for the long game. We have a chance to expand things in 2022 and get real change done. But sadly, we didn't do well enough this year to get more than a moderate change over the next two years. In 2024, nearly 10 Democratic seats will be on the defensive with only around two Republican seats on the defensive, meaning 2022 is the year we have to have to make any real change. I seriously hope we can do well, but history doesn't look good for us and we must always keep striving for change. So thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I'm sure there was nothing controversial about this and everyone will happily get along in the comments section, which you can do on the YouTube version of this video or my Facebook page, After School Democracy. Link in the show notes. Just a reminder that I'm Anubis2814 on YouTube and I have over 500 videos on different topics that I've made over the past 10 years. Please subscribe and if your podcast site has the option, give me a like or review. If you think what I have to say informed you, consider supporting my Patreon. I'll be doing this podcast weekly and try to get it out on the same day, so I hope to see you here next week, ready to be filled with new ideas. Take care. This channel is helped tremendously by the generous supporters on Patreon. A big thank you to the wonderful Joe Taylor, Elias Garcia Guevara, and Ogrel for their support at the $10 a month Wapawet level. Please consider donating to my work if you can, and thank you all for listening.